This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Alien Superstar Edition. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. On today's show, Jordan Peele, he's the cinematic genius behind Get Out and Us, returns with Nope, a wild genre potpourri and a meditation on race and the culture of the spectacle. It stars Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer. And then Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman were two Hollywood stars who had it, really had it all. Uh, They had fame, cred, looks, charms, even decency remember decency and even more improbably they were married to one another for 50 years the last movie stars is a six-part documentary series on hbo it tells their story it's directed by ethan hawk and will be joined by isaac butler swap special friend of the program isaac butler to discuss and finally beyonce has a new album but for us today that's the subhead the header is we'll be joined by nadira goff our production assistant to discuss renaissance uh beyonce's new album but first joining me is julia turner the deputy managing editor of the la times hey julia hello hello and of course dana stevens is the film critic for slate hey dana hey steven uh we got a lot of juicy stuff today shall we uh shall we dig in yeah we got big stuff to talk about brilliant okay jordan peele he's converted himself from a brilliant sketch comedian into one of the world's most important film directors a total auteur in the tradition of fill in the blank Truffaut, hitchcock spielberg on and on he's done so by being a brilliantly gifted filmmaker in all respects but also by combining genre elements with social commentary specifically about being black in contemporary america most famously of course in get out now he returns with nope the story of a horse wrangling family in hollywood uh stars Daniel Kaluuya as O.J., Otis Jr. No sooner has O.J. taken over the family business from his father that he finds his isolated valley ranch being surveyed by something very mysterious, very ominous, lurking in the clouds. He and his sister, M, played by Kiki Palmer, are desperate to photographically, videographically prove the existence of alien visitors. They see it as their possible meal ticket, only to find themselves in way way over their heads uh the all-time greatest understatement let's listen to a clip uh these huge movies sometimes you really don't get a full clip but you get a piece of the trailer in this one you'll hear kiki palmer and Kluya's brother and sister you'll hear also the voice of Stephen Yun's character ricky park who's invited paying customers to catch a glimpse of an alien visitor let's listen bro what'd you see someone above the clouds that's big. How big? Big. You think whatever killed Pops is out there? Right here, you are going to witness an absolute spectacle. So what happens next? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? <laughs> That is the clip to end all clips right there, Dana. This movie, I loved the opening line of your review. I can't quote it from memory where you just talked about all of the elements at work in making this movie. It's sci-fi, it's a suspense thriller, it's a race parable, all the above. Uh, Talk about Nope. 
Oh, man, I'm so happy we're talking about Note, because even after seeing it, writing a review of it, doing a spoiler special on it with Nadira Goff, who's going to join us later on to talk about Beyonce's new album, I still don't feel like I've gotten to the bottom of this movie. And I really, really wanted to see it again before our conversation. And because of various scheduling crisscrosses, have still only been able to see it once. This is completely the kind of movie that you have to see twice. And I say that not even loving the whole result of the movie. I mean, I think that that lead you're talking about, Steve, what it essentially did was sort of lay out all of the different genres. This is spoofing and, you know, melding and bringing together Western, sci-fi, you know, home invasion thriller, every other type of movie. And yet... I think I end that sentence by saying it, it adds up to less than the sum of its parts. So I was one of the people who went with such high expectations for this movie, having loved Get Out and also loved Us, with which lots of people I think didn't and regarded as sort of a sophomore slump movie for Jordan Peele. I feel like even though Us doesn't completely cohere, it's so brilliant and ambitious that I'm, I'm really happy it's out there. I think about it and about Lupita Nyong'o's performance specifically in it all the time. Um, so big expectations for Nope. They were somewhat obscurely disappointed, and I'm still trying to figure out why. So I want to talk about it with both of you. I think just to lay out what my reservations were really, really briefly and reductively, I think it would be that this movie bites off more than it can chew idea-wise. It's so full of beautiful images, you know, great cinematography, music, sound. It's sort of on a craft level is really beautifully done and has many segments where I felt, you know, kind of that cinematic exaltation, that almost Spielbergian feeling of being caught up in a big summer spectacle. And yet it has so many of those ideas and subplots and, you know, world-building moments that come together that I'm not quite sure what huge parts of it we're trying to accomplish, and I'm not even sure what the ending means or exactly even what happened in the last 20 minutes. And that's why we're going to have a spoiler segment later in the show for our bonus content talking about it. But that is my very big answer to your to your big question. And I wonder if the two of you also went in with, you know, expectations that were subverted or maybe they were surpassed. Yeah, I mean, I think Jordan Peele is the filmmaker working today whose work I'm most excited to see with the possible compliment of Greta Gerwig. Like, I feel like those are the two people who I'm like, yes, what are they doing? Must see, must know. Really excited. Um, I'm sure some other filmmaker will come to mind, but th- those are the two that left to mind right now. And I, I really loved how different this movie is from us and get out which themselves are different from each other but have a a similar tightness uh, a kind of specificity of purpose and point they feel like they're meant to be decoded almost um and this movie i think is trying to do something a little bit more elusive which is perhaps why it leaves you feeling like it's less than the sum of its parts. And maybe it is less than some of its parts, but it's, it feels a little rangier. And, um, you know, I mean, even just the fact of it being outdoors rather than indoors, like it feels unbound, like it doesn't feel constrained in, in, uh, um, the tight little jewel box of the, the social parables that it felt like Peel was making with the other films. Um, and, it was a good time. <laughs> like basically, it was a good time at the movies, which I also enjoyed. Um, you know, I think the the nope of the title, we can we can get into what its meaning is. But I think what the movie is attempting to do is challenge all of our desire to watch amazing things and the role that Hollywood has played in encouraging us to watch amazing things and to define what amazing is and who gets to make amazing things. And this movie 
challenges all those assumptions while still using the tools and techniques of cinema and the grand historic uh, Hollywood swaths of desert to show us amazing things, even as it's telling us, nope, you shouldn't be looking. Uh, and that's just an interesting tension and, and the performances are great. And yeah, so I'm still puzzling it over too, but I, I did enjoy it. Steve, what'd you make of it? I'm very much uh, in both of your camps, I think, in the sense that it's uh, a spectacular visual and conceptual feast. It's a very thought-out movie at the level of the frame, uh, all the way to its, you know, attempt to understand the role of spectacle in the common consciousness and our thrall to spectacle. Um and uh, what looking at spectacle means we're looking away from, and on and on and on. And at the center of this movie is a relationship between this brother and the sister. It's quite good, but it doesn't breathe a lot. It doesn't get a lot of oxygen. It doesn't get... It's it's a very airless, portentous movie um, with a lot of suspense and run-up. And for me, as a, as a sheerly as a picture, it didn't work for me for about the first first hour. I, I, I was intrigued because the man making it is a genius. The performances are wonderful. They're incredible visual set pieces. Um, it's very much in the school of don't show the shark, don't show the shark, don't show the shark, right? Like, you know, or to close encounters, like don't show the um, space aliens, like withhold, 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 which is extraordinary active discipline in the age of the, of the blockbuster, given where we are in the arc of the blockbuster. But at the same time, like, what are these elements? How are they cohering? How are they coming together? Like organically with themselves. I understand intellectually why they're all there. I hear the thesis and I hear what's being said to me. Um, and there's a even the trailer clip we heard is brilliant in the sense that, you know, that's a hokum theme park. There aren't real aliens to the huckster, you know, Yun that we hear played by the actor uh, Stephen Young. Uh, that's a, a car American Carney moment, right? He's an ex-child actor who's making coin off of some you know, myth that maybe, you know, aliens come to this little Western town or something. And, um, and that ridiculous spectacle that we're supposed to feel something like contempt for suddenly gets interrupted by the actual thing, but actual, as Jordan Peele well knows, in the context of it being a Hollywood movie, right? It's not actually actual. It too is a simulacrum. And so he's playing in this, you know, virtuoso way on this line between, I'm going to make something seem very real to you using these totally artificial methods, and I'm going to make you aware of their artificiality and the cost of being seduced by their artificiality. That's a lot to ask of a viewer who also wants to enjoy being around characters, care about them and their fate, and become completely enthralled by a genre-propelled plot. And then I thought, weirdly enough, suddenly it began to cohere. It, it cohered, and this doesn't give anything away, it coheres when the cinematographer, who's sort of a wonderful character, appears, and suddenly you've got this little team, and, and uh, you know, this sort of techie nerd that they picked up accidentally at a big box store, the siblings, and this grizzled old, almost comically absurdly self-important uh, cinematographer, are banded together trying to get the shot, which if you've been around movies or movie people, which I scarcely have, that is not an attempt to make myself seem glamorous, but the shot is the thing. It's like, how are we going to get this fucking shot? Is that that obsession? And so, Dana, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, like, people should 
go see this movie. I totally with, agree with Julia. He's one of the world's great uh, uh, minds of talents of cinema. You should go see his movies. This one is satisfying in the strangest possible way. Um, but it, it it's, it's so primitive, but it's like its ability to click is so... It, maybe is it purposely withheld from the viewer? I mean, this conversation is really proving to me that, A, I really do need to see it again. And B, everybody seems to experience this movie completely differently. Because, Steve, you were just saying it all coheres in the last hour when the cinematographer guy, I think that's when it starts to fall apart. I thought the first hour of it was really menacing and portentous and promising all these big ideas. And that the action climax, well, we we can spoil this in our spoiler segment. But, you know, there's a lot of elaborate preparation for the way that they're going to photograph and sort of trap this alien, get it on film, right? Which has been what the whole movie has been leading up to. It both sort of resolves all the thematic things we were talking about, about viewership and spectacle and spectatorship. And it resolves the simple plot question of, are they going to save their failing horse ranch by photographing an alien and thus presumably making their fortune off it, right? And yet that action set piece at the end, to me, didn't make actual plot sense. And I saw it at a press screening and walked out with two movie critics I greatly respect and was saying, can you guys explain X Y Z plot points. I laid some things out in that climax, and neither of them had any idea either. So, I mean, I almost feel like something has been left out of this movie. There was apparently a much longer cut that Peel made, over three hours that he cut this down from, and I feel like whole character arcs are missing. Kiki Palmer, fantastic performance, incredibly charming, funny, charismatic, but her character is not extremely well developed and doesn't change, and that yes, really bothered I me. Agree. It bothered me that Daniel Kaluuya, who is such a muse for Jordan Peele, and I love when they work together, right? I mean, yeah. they he, they understand each other perfectly. And his character, I understand. His character, I feel like I could I could write a little, you know, essay about who he is and how he changes and what he wants mm. and needs in the movie. She seems like she's there as a comic foil who provides energy and humor, but who I don't know who she is or what she wants. And that could be something that was left out of the cut. I have no idea. But I think that Peele needs to provide these things. I don't want it to be the case that we have to create fan theories to understand who the characters are and what they want. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I think is really interesting in the film is its relationship to race, because I think it's primarily a commentary about Hollywood, and that intersects with race in terms of who's who's been making movies, who's been lionized for making movies, who's been in movies. But um, it's a little more oblique than the past two films, which I think you could put in the box explicitly about, you know, capital R race in capital A America. Um, however, the resonance is here of um, the, the fact that we've got black heroes at the center of the film and that, in fact, their superpower in dealing with this extraterrestrial is um, fear, their, their, their familiarity with fear, their comfort with fear, um, and, the, and the training that they have as black people in America. I mean, this is all tacit in the film, but but this was one of my reads in it. And I don't think it's accidental of like, don't look it in the eye, uh, don't engage, stay out of situations that seem like they might get tricky um, is is also an interesting step for him. I think that the, that the subject moves on from, you know, the, the race question being central and here the spectacle question is central and then it's informed by Peel's deep thinking about an experience of race. And I thought that was a really interesting and fascinating and, and excellent evolution. Like just that he, he, you know, has been given the budget and the spectacle to make the movie he wants and the movie he wanted to make in the wake of this pandemic 
draws on those themes, but is about something else and about how we're compelled towards towards chaos and the and the and the watching of it. I mean, I you know, I think it also comes out of like it was fat, you know, the pandemic was fascinating. The pandemic was mesmerizing. The pandemic was enervating and horrible and and awful, but also so interesting. Nothing like that had happened before. So I think that I think the kind of revulsion of our fascination with the extraordinary and the jaw dropping is also part of the subtext here. It's so smart. He's so great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm looking forward to talking about the end a little bit more in our plus segment, but I don't know. The more I talk about it, the more I like it. Go see it. Definitely go see it. There you go. Fair enough. Okay. Nope is uh, out in theaters. Uh, we'd love feedback uh, from listeners on what you thought of it because it is it is as thought provoking as any big budget film uh, I think I may have ever seen. All right, moving on. All right. Well, before we go any further, typically uh, we have business we have to attend to. Uh, Dana Stevens, what what do we have? Business is just to tell listeners, Steve, about today's Slate Plus segment, which is going to be one of our patented spoiler spillover segments. We're going to be talking about Nope, the new Jordan Peele movie, which is a very twist-dependent movie that it's really hard to talk about without spoiling. And you really can't get into the nitty-gritty of, like, does this huge, big thing hang together without talking about the ending? So we will continue our Nope conversation into a spoiler spillover, which will constitute our bonus segment for this week. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you want to hear segments like that, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus when you become a slate plus member you get ad-free podcasts you get bonus content on lots of slate podcasts like the extra segment i just described and of course you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on slate i should also mention that you'll be supporting us our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues when you become a slate plus member so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus once again that's slate.com slash culture plus okay back to the show All right, well, I'm going to start this segment a little differently with a personal reminiscence. When I was very, very small, my parents took me to see a movie. I can't remember which one, but the movie theater was in town, that town being Westport, Connecticut, which is now quite chic, but then actually was still a little bohemian seaside retreat, uh, quite underdeveloped. Uh, When in walked, just after the lights went down and and the credits started rolling, in walked Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And even at that age, I knew who he was, certainly. Um, I don't know that I knew who she was quite as vividly, but I knew they were both very famous. And and what struck me was how utterly human they both seemed, how comfortable with one another. There was no fanfare at all. They just sat and watched the picture. And really, that story brings to mind two anachronisms. One, the great age of Hollywood movies and movie stars. But the second also, uh, the movie theater was actually in the town. It wasn't a movie plex. It was sort of integral at that point in the um, actual main street of the uh, of the community. Um, the last movie stars on HBO is a six-part documentary about the lives and careers of Woodward and Newman. But in many ways, it's it's an elegy to the era that I'm recalling fondly in my in my anecdote. Um, and at the center of the story that the director Ethan Hawke is telling in his documentary is the decades-long marriage between the two of them. Um, it takes us back to a moment when movies were, as Gore Vidal calls them in the body of the documentary, quite beautifully. They were still the universal art form. Uh, of this country yet to be displaced by TV. Um, There was something so unprecedented about each of them. Um, Each had a career 
decades-long career at the absolute pinnacle where fame and artistic respect go perfectly hand-in-hand with one another. And then they were married to one another during all of that. It's actually quite a rich subject for a documentary. Why don't don't we listen to a clip? Uh, Let me just talk a little bit very quickly about Hawk's method, which will make the clip uh, make sense. Hawk has come across a huge trove of transcribed interviews with all of the major people in and around Paul Newman's life, but there's no audio corollary to them anymore. That was destroyed. So what he's done is he's enlisted very famous actors. You have uh, George Clooney voicing Newman, uh, and in the clip you'll hear an actor voicing Gore Vidal talking about Joanne Woodward's acting style and how it differed from Paul Newman's. Let's listen. Everything is instinctive. Everything is natural. The difference between her and Paul as actors is that he's constantly thinking, thinking, thinking. And it sometimes gets in his way. People of our generation, you see, there was something unmanly about being an actor. So you had to pretend it was essentially a very complex business and that you were thinking like a physicist or even an astronaut and for a woman that's a very natural thing to do i mean particularly for our generation women were meant to be actresses in real life as well as on the screen all right well julia is going to be sitting out for this next segment in her place is isaac butler author of the method how the 20th century learned to act uh sometimes on the show we just luck into the most apt guest imaginable uh, for a segment. Isaac, explain why you are the perfect guest for the upcoming segment. (laughs) Well, first of all, it is always a pleasure to be here. And thank you so, so much for having me and confirming my SFOP status. Um, well, I mean, the reason why it's 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 very apt is that Paul Newman was a method actor and that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward uh, were both big movers and shakers, key members of the actor's studio, which was really the the high temple for the method beginning, you know, from about 1950 on once Lee Strasberg, the kind of codifier of the method became the artistic director there. Hmm. And um, so this, uh, I want to get into that more deeply. Let's begin with Newman and and Woodward, though, um, themselves. I mean, what what I found, first of all, I I find this riveting. Second of all, it's revelation upon revelation, one of which I may have dimly known, but none of the really interesting specifics that not only did Woodward precede Newman in prominence, fame, uh, and and w- w- was you know monumentally respected really bef- well before Newman was who was thought of as a kind of like James Dean Marlon Brando Man K you know sort of the guy you got if the guy you wanted uh, 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 turned it down or died I mean he you know um, but the second thing was Newman it, it himself credits his invention as capital P capital N Paul Newman to almost almost explicitly to his sex life with Joanne Woodward yeah. and to the tutelage of Lee Strasberg. And he's very humble and very open about how in and of himself, as a person, none of that was otherwise there. It's just fascinating, right? What a powerful figure she was in herself, uh, but also in the creation of this uh, Hollywood icon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that emerges as a kind of theme throughout the six-part documentary is Paul Newman's, I mean, you could call it neuroticism or self-loathing, but it actually seems like 
fairly accurate self-knowledge that 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 he knows himself and his limitations he knows he's not as good an actor as joanne woodward that he's not as talented as she is uh and and so he works extremely hard at uh you know what he needs to do to give good performances he um knows he has a terrible drinking problem he knows that there's parts of himself that he has a lot of trouble sharing and and he really does know that Joanne Lee Strasberg and Joanne Woodward are responsible for creating him. And then he kind of overshadows both of them. And then, um, clearly that causes serious, serious problems, you know, within their marriage and and artistic life, which is then solved by him casting her in this movie, Rachel, Rachel, that he's directing. And, and, and they then have this kind of flourishing, very fascinating, uh, uh, career. He's a much bigger star than she is, but she winds up having a very, very fulfilling career as well. Yeah. Isaac, as, as somebody who thinks a lot about acting and analyzing acting and actors, I wanted to hear what you thought about the framing of this documentary as well, because as Steve established up top, Every, almost everything that we hear from the point of view of Woodward, Newman, you know, the various directors who worked with them, et cetera, is read by actors from these transcripts of, of tapes that Newman made for a memoir late in his life. And we often see those actors um, as themselves, you know, not doing the, the voiceovers, but talking with Ethan Hawke via Zoom, because this was all begun during the early days of the pandemic. So you see everybody with their crazy pandemic Zoom hair kind of talking about Woodward and Newman. And from the outside, that sounds like it would be very self-indulgent and like you would want to get past the Zoom conversations with contemporary actors and into the old stuff. But I found it remarkably well integrated. And I wondered what you thought of those conversations and of of the choice to layer, you know, sort of um, conversations about acting among contemporary working actors with this look back on a past generation of a very different kind of acting. I was so moved by it. Honestly, I was really moved and frankly inspired by the way that Ethan Hawke made the movie as as he could make it with the means that were available to him. And he turned those things into really powerful choices that formally shaped, you know, every corner of that movie. You know, there's all sorts of other ways. There's many, many ways to do a a film, you know, and that he chose to do it because they have the transcripts, but the original tapes Paul Newman destroyed. And so they have all these transcripts with everyone who knew him recorded for years and years and years. And, um, you know, that's the gold. And so he has to recreate it in a way that will work on film. And then through directing those friends of his, you know, he can get out the exposition that we sometimes need to understand what's going on in the story. And then you have these actors and actors love talking about the craft of acting. You know, it's they're artists. They watch each other. They understand each other. You know, they have this deep understanding of what being an actor and for many of them being a famous movie star entails. And so they're able to think quite in and talk quite insightfully about that experience and to bring it to life and to make it human scale. I think. And and the, it's the human scale of the documentary that I just found almost, you know, emotionally overwhelming um, because a lot of times these biographical documentaries end up really, you know, kind of hagiographic, you know, and this movie is, is anything but, you know, it, it real, but it's not 
condemning Newman for his foibles or anything like that. It, it It's just treating them as, as rounded, full human beings and respecting them as human beings means talking about the difficult parts of their lives, you know, like the end of the second episode when Joanne says, um, I love my kids, but if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have had children. It's very hard. You know, actors yeah. don't make good parents. I was just like, I can't fucking believe that is in this movie Yeah, that he's making with her kids, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. um, uh, and, and so I was just, I was really, really moved by those choices. I thought they were really fearless on a formal level and smart, and they really make the movie what it is. Yeah, I was surprised to see that Richard Brody in The New Yorker wrote that he found this hagiographic. I think he uses that word in you know, the first sentence of his article about it, and I, I found it just the opposite, as yeah, you say, absurd. Isaac. It's not going about debunking myths. It's not going about doing some sort of expose about you know the dark underbelly of, of Newman and Woodward. It's certainly very respectful of them as actors, but but absolutely not trying to create or, or shore up any kind of myth. I mean, I would have some quibbles a little bit with the construction of this at times. I do like a documentary that is more clear in its chronological markers. And while I, I love that Hawk is organizing the chapters of the six-chapter doc more thematically than chronologically, I sometimes wished that we had established a little bit more. And wait, had she won her Oscar at this point? And, you know, where are they living? And how many children have they had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because it is a little impressionistic in that way. But that's something of a quibble because even as I was thinking those thoughts, I couldn't wait to get to the next episode. What I found so, so gripping for both of them is she's a technician and a natural, right? Which is why she gets there very quickly. You know, and then Newman is so interesting because here he is, he's this struggling technician, kind of a wannabe, as if he, if he learns the rules and obeys them, he'll become the thing he wants to be. He doesn't naturally smolder on screen the way Brando does. He's jealous of Brando, uh, you know, the method pioneer, um, who's also a kind of beast, a kind of id figure, uh, and what's funny is that is that uh, there's just that astonishing moment where, where like all geniuses, Newman learns to make his weaknesses his strengths, and all of a sudden the person who can't quite manifest himself becomes the character that he plays. You know, like like the the, the combination of a kind of inner haplessness and 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 self sabotage versus the smoldering ambition and a man who's powerfully good looking but doesn't quite know it or know how to exploit it. It all comes together in HUD and The Hustler. Um, and so it's just funny to see these two arcs side by side and then see how the patriarchy just determines a winner, even though they're both phenomenally good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because, again, I mean, I don't think Newman, the, the film's very open about this, that Newman is not does not have her talent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But in in terms of the the history of 20th century acting, he's in some ways a far more important figure because he is part of this wave um, that that expands what the method leading man can do. So, you know, in the 50s, the method leading man, it's all self-loathing. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and Newman does that a bit in um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which I think is a, a dreadful movie that he's pretty bad in. And uh, Paris Blues, a Martin Ritt movie with Sidney Poitier, which is, I'm so glad the, mo- the, the last movie star spent some time on it because it's a wonderful, wonderful film. But then, you know, starting in the 60s with HUD, with The Hustler, with the movies he starts making there, suddenly the method, it's something a leading man can use. Mm. You can uh, be an agentic, confident, solid, you know, hewn from stone leading man. You can be Paul Newman. You can be Steve McQueen. You can be Sidney Poitier. Those are the three big method actors of the 60s, you know? And and so there's a new kind of confidence that that he brings in there, a new kind of sureness. I mean, that performance in HUD, if, if listeners have not seen HUD, I mean, it's one of the great film performances of all time, but it is because he's taking those limits and turning them into strengths. It is because he's withholding the, the, the parts from him that he has trouble sharing and he's making that work for the character. Yeah. And he's making his power as an, as an actor in Hollywood at that moment work for him. Right. And you see that in the movie too, that he, he's sort of aware at that moment that there's, there's a window, you know, to have a different tone and also to get the kind of jobs that he wants. And, uh, and yeah, you, you start to see him choose roles like HUD or the hustler and things like that. All right. Well, we are each brought the maximum amount of passion and enthusiasm. I could talk about this literally for another hour. Newman uh, is my favorite screen actor of all time. Um, Isaac Butler, author of The Method, a terrific, terrific book about the history of method acting. Isaac, uh, thank you for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Stephen. All right. Well, it was inevitable that we were going to talk about Beyonce's new album. It's already huge, going to be only huger. It's a cultural phenomenon. Um, But for I have to say, speaking for myself, what's exciting is that Nadira comes over to the other side of the glass and joins us in front of the microphone, Nadira Goff. Nadira, uh, you're the editorial assistant for Slade in in addition to being the production assistant for our podcast. Two observations right off the bat. The first is that um, repeatedly in the kind of live chat that accompanies our recording of our show, uh, you say the funniest and most interesting things. I'm like, ah, she should be hosting this podcast. So we're going to we're going <laughs> to rectify that now uh, a little bit. Um, talk to us about not only this album, but where it comes in the career arc of the superstar who made it. Yeah, I mean, I'll do anything to talk about Beyonce, truly. <laughs> and I'll talk about her anywhere. Um, and I think that this album is really, really special. Beyonce has been reasserting herself since her 2013 self-titled album, In that album, she reasserted herself as a vanguard, as someone who changes the music industry, um, and also as someone who's sexual while still being a mother, which I think a lot of people were surprised by or upset by. Um, And then with Lemonade in 2016, she reasserted her blackness. She reasserted her identity as a human. You know, I think she's this megastar that we all forgot could be hurt and could feel deeply. Um, And then... After that, she sort of did a few collaborative projects um, and some live projects, most notably her live album Homecoming that she did for the Coachella performance, and then The Lion King, The Gift, which was the companion album that she did for the companion film (laughs) for the remake of The Lion King. And both of those came out in 2019. And now she's back. She's back with a vengeance. And she's still reasserting herself. She's reasserting herself as someone who is still Black, still very Black and deeply steeped in Black culture, and as someone who is 
very bluntly sexual, maybe in a way that she hasn't really let herself be before, but more so than reasserting herself, what she made was an anthem album. She made a dance album for everyone else. That's an homage to the Black community, to the LGBT community. Um, That's her first continuous album. I mean, it's just a dance album that can go on and on and on instead of pauses in between the songs. There are transitions between the songs. And she really does this by utilizing so many different genres that when you look up a review of the album, they list like five more genres that weren't listed in a previous review you just read. Um, And she does that by really collaborating with some of the most expansive and premier collaborators in house, in R&B, in disco, in hip hop. Um, And so it's really sort of her magnum opus. It's the first part of three acts. The other two acts, we don't know what they'll be. But with this one, she really, really is asserting this album as an homage to the Black community and to the LGBT community, like I said. Um, And I think the single from the album Break My Soul is probably the best example of that. She came out with a force. She came out strong. And I think we should listen to it. Yeah, that song just keeps getting better the more and more you listen to it. And one of the things that I found really striking about this album, which I just listened to all weekend long, is Beyonce's choice to go to the dance floor at this moment in human history. That that um, it it actually made me think a little bit of the of Jordan Peele's choice in Nope to go to the wide open spaces, to go to the American West, to sort of look outside, look up, to to be in the air, which, you know, we all became, there was so much introversion and so much reversion to the home and to the indoors um, during the pandemic. But this is sort of another place that people felt they couldn't go for a while, which is like the big sweaty throng <laughs> of people having a good time and, and you know, embracing the fact that the point of life is to is to is to just be and to be in your body and to be in your body in the world. Um, another song that I really liked was the uh, another dance floor anthem, um, cozy, and the dance floor. Dance floor is a lot of things. Haven't thought thought of the dance floor as a cozy place particularly. I guess there's like the tabloid lingo of like stars getting cozy in a booth or something. But um, I, I enjoyed that juxtaposition. Let's listen to a little bit of cozy. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about this album so much is that even though it is very specific in its influences and in the spaces that it's calling out to, it's for everyone. It's really made up of anthems that are about loving yourself. You know, I think Cozy more than being an anthem about being cozy on the dance floor is about being cozy enough to do whatever you want on the dance floor, being cozy enough in your own skin to be exactly who you are in that moment and to do all the things that you 
want to do or feel you should do in that moment. And I think she leans into a lot of that messaging when she gets into her more sexier songs as well on the album. But that's kind of an overwhelming theme throughout. And I just love it. Absolutely. Here's a sentence I'd love to hear you speak to, which is um, someone said that Beyonce's pop's greatest neat freak, but on this record, she's like indulging in a kind of aural chaos in a way that there's a kind of move in a different direction. What do you, does that, does that rhyme with something you feel about her and about this record? Maybe. I mean, I think that it would be remiss to assume even for a second that not every single sound and sonic moment on this album wasn't explicitly chosen for the place that it was put in and Mm -hmm. fought over and (laughs) probably put in and taken out and put back in and taken out. I think Beyonce is a perfectionist at heart. You know, she said this in all of her behind the scenes content that she's released before. But I understand what that statement is saying in the sense that this is maybe one of my favorite Beyonce albums because I do believe it's her most sonically complex album. I think to she blends just so many genres in this album. And I think in order to do that, it does have to feel a little chaotic. And I think a little chaotic is definitely what she was going for. I think she wants a point of release. You know, she wants people to be able to just kind of let it all go on the dance floor. And in order to achieve that, there does have to be a little bit of chaos, you know, and I don't think that she has afforded herself the luxury of chaos in the past. And I'm really happy that she's affording herself the luxury now and that she's affording all of us the luxury. Yeah, I mean, I, that that balance, I feel like when we've talked about Beyonce albums in the past, usually I've been the ardent fan and Steve and Dana have both like liked the music, but also I think I think you guys have used the phrase Tracy Flick about her, that there's something so mm-hmm. designed and so kind of processed about her that, that that her music has not been like chaotic or messy enough to resonate with you. And I feel like the thing I'm going to keep thinking about with this album is that balance, like, like Nadira is saying, there's nothing messy here, but she's using her incredible skills of synthesis and orchestration and, and um, scholarship, honestly, like music scholarship to make something that feels a little wilder and feels a little, you know, feels more comfortable being less of a polished projection of selfhood. It's a gay Jackson Pollock. Who doesn't love a gay Jackson Pollock, you know? (laughs) Chaotic, purposeful. And can I just like follow up with a quick, like a quick observation slash question, which is that, you know, this is obviously an album with a huge debt to the disco moment in the 1970s in some sense. I mean, it's it's a ton of different musical traditions are present, um, co-present on each one of these tracks. But there is a feeling of like the dance floor is this hallowed space of personal freedom in which, you know, especially identity as LGBTQ is allowed to absolutely freely out and express itself. And for disco, that was huge because you're at the moment where the closet door is still closed in 19, you know, from the early seventies to the late seventies, but it's, it's cracking open. Right. And the, and disco is, is someone who was very much alive during its heyday uh, and listened to it in its heyday. It was very much about that interplay of like, we're kind of saying it out loud. Like we're kind of, we're kind of just saying, 
fuck you, we're here, and this is who we are. But we're not really saying it, and we're not saying it just enough to crack the top 10 and become a huge phenomenon, right? And I wonder if there isn't that the timeliness of this record is, like that door which has been, we all thought wide open for a long time and forever is clo- is closing, or some people are on the other side of it desperately trying to get it closed again. And so there's a renewed poignancy to the idea of, a club or a disco or the, whatever the equivalent is called now today, there's, the, there's this renewed poignancy to it as a free space because like we were wrong. Like the world isn't a, isn't a free space in the way we mistook it for. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I think even beyond the sort of social political implications of it, we just went through and are still going through a pandemic, you know, like we actually couldn't access these community spaces that were necessary to people's survival for so long. And I think she traces that trajectory throughout the album. You know, she has a sample by Donna Summer on Summer Renaissance. Um, She also, one of my favorite, favorite features on the album is from Grace Jones, who like never leaves her house, you know, and Mm. Beyonce somehow got her to leave her house, even after saying in Grace Jones's 2015 memoir that she doesn't do collaborations. (laughs) But somehow Beyonce managed to get her there on the song Move. Um, Big Frida is sort of all over this album. One of my other favorite samples is from um, a 90s drag star named uh, Moi Renee, uh, she has this song called Miss Honey, which is sampled on Pure Honey. And it's just one of the biggest moments of release. But I think she specifically traces that trajectory that you were talking about, Steve, from Disco with Donna Summer to specifically the ballroom culture. And I think one of my favorite moments of her showing how the ballroom culture kind of took the disco sort of ethos of we're not saying it, but we're kind of saying it. And Ballroom just mm. said it, right? Ballroom was yeah. very unapologetic. It was a very open space. It was a very, um, it was a space of acknowledgement, I think, that was very open and very accepting. And one of my favorite examples of her paying homage to Ballroom specifically in that line of being who you are and not being afraid to say it is on the song Heated. There's this breakdown at about the three minute mark where she really is inspired by the House of La Beja and other ballroom MCs and other ballroom houses where she just starts, for lack of a better phrase, talking her shit. <laughs> I think it's really inspiring and really free. I mean, that is just so silly. It's just great to hear her let loose like that, right? Because like you say, she is an artist of so much control. And, you know, you think of her as this kind of icon of control and power and, you know, having everything in place, right? Like I woke up like this. Absolutely. <laughs> so to hear her kind of like let loose like that is, is really fun. Um, Nadira, you were talking about how she um, she brings so many people in on this album, right? I mean, there's tons and tons of collaborators. There's tons of samples. There's really a sense almost that she's hosting a party. And, uh, Absolutely. There's, there's sort of, or she's a really good wedding DJ who's <laughs> getting everyone out on the dance floor, right? And I think the Grace Jones moment, the, my two favorite songs are the Donna Summer sampling one that you mentioned, which samples I Feel Love and a beautiful little quote that opens it up, and the Grace Jones collaboration. And both of those, of course, are queer icons, disco icons, you know, just like women from the 70s and 80s that we associate with, you know, this pop culture that was bringing something completely new to the table. So I didn't realize that Grace Jones never left her house. That makes it all the more amazing. But I think my favorite song on the album is Move. And I wonder if we could hear a little bit from the chorus of that, because you really hear that great butch energy from Grace Jones that she brings to the song. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I absolutely love Grace Jones, uh, partially because she's Jamaican and a tourist like me, um, but also because she's just so deeply influential. And she's one of those queer icons, like you were saying, that somehow managed to be one of the pinnacle queer icons without being openly queer themselves, which I think is a wonderful testament to how open they are with their music and what statements they make. Um, But that song particularly struck me because I think the way that I position this album in terms of Beyonce's career or her artistic trajectory is the album that she released right before this was that Lion King project that I mentioned. And it was all about pan-Africanism and where Black people come from and where our home is and kind of what our traditions are and where they started as. And it seems like she took that album's ethos of where are we from? And kind of with this album just went with where did we go? And she goes all over the diaspora in terms of the genres that she features on this album. Um, You know, you get dance hall, you get reggae, you get Afrobeats, which are used in that song move particularly, but it's still got a house beat. You know, it's still techno. It's still electronic. And she also goes back to her R&B roots on some of the other songs as well. One of my favorites off the album is Plastic Off the Sofa, which is one of the more classic Beyonce songs, I think. You know, it's very R&B heavy, but it's it's still in this blend of so many different genres that kind of showcases the best of music of the Black diaspora, which I think is really beautiful. All right, that's perfect, Nadira. Why don't we go out on that on that cut? But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining. Let's please do this again soon. It was terrific. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You can't help but be yourself around me, yourself around me, sugar. When you're tripping, I know I make up and make love, so I let you be, I let you be. It's the way you listen when I'm crying, you let me All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have? Steve, my endorsement flows out of our Summer Strut episode that we did last week. It's partly from a listener email or a couple listener emails about our pronunciation of the names of Irish musicians. I beg your pardon, both of you, Roisin Murphy, who, Steve, I believe, sung one of the songs that you put on your list. Is that right? Uh, no, but I'm a very big fan. I've endorsed her. That was a Chris, Chris Rack. Ah, that was a Chris Malinfi. Okay, well, she was one musician that we talked about whose name we apparently mispronounced because it's one of those, you know, Irish names that's spelled quite differently from how it's pronounced. It's actually Roisin. And then one of my singers who I've come to love even more since was um, Seamat, the Irish singer-songwriter who just came out with her first album. Her real name is Kira Mary Alice Thompson, and I think I pronounced her first name wrong. Anyway, this Irish listener showed me some other crazy crazy Irish spellings that I won't even attempt that are even more distant from how they're pronounced. But I mentioned that in the context of just saying that I've been listening more to that CMAT album called If My Wife Knew I'd Be Dead. Uh, It's fantastic. It's just so good. I love that one song from it. 
that a listener sent in for the list called Every Bottle is a Boyfriend. But then when I heard it in the context of the entire album, it's just, it's such a great debut album. And in fact, my daughter loves it now too. And we've been listening to it together. And we went online and found that CMAT is coming to our town in October and we're going to go hear her play live. So thank you so much to the listener who sent in Kira Mary Alice Thompson's music. And I'm sorry, I got her name wrong. Mm, Very cool. All right, uh, Julia, what do you have? All right. Uh, my endorsement today is an endorsement from Recipe Julia. Um, I Green beans are not something I've ever really used a recipe to cook. You know, they're like delicious and you cook them and you put some butter or some lemon or something on it, some spice, whatever, some parsley. Yum. You know, green beans. Who, who needs to even think about green beans? However, I have found myself in possession of many, many green beans out here in the in the bounteous, har- bounteous harvest land of California, um, which sent me scurrying to my cookbook shelf. And on that shelf, I found Allison Roman's Nothing Fancy. And uh, in Allison Roman's Nothing Fancy, I found a recipe for mustardy green beans with anchovied walnuts, um, which is a delicious recipe that requires you to roast green beans with lemon slices, which gives them like a delicious um, citrusy tang. It also requires you to make a dressing and a topping. The dressing is just kind of like a, a you know whole ground mustard vinaigrette. And then the topping is walnuts fried in olive oil and then with anchovy and pressed garlic kind of stirred into it at the end and then cooled. So you toss the green beans in the mustard dressing, you put the fish nuts on top, you put dill on top of that, um, and it's a revelation, like it's almost an entree. It's so good. So if you uh, are are in possession of a green bean harvest, I would send you to mustardy green beans with anchovy walnuts. I was just madly that, Googling that recipe while yeah. you were talking about it. <laughs> I must have it. It looks so good. Uh, all right, Julia, what do uh, what do the Carolina wren, the wood thrush, and the and the chipping sparrow all have in common? Being in your backyard. Mm-hmm. There, and how do I know that? <laughs> because of the Merlin app. Yeah, I sent you a a loving <laughs> collegial text that you completely ignored a screenshot <laughs> of me playing around with merlin uh it's so fabulous this incredibly high-powered app i mean i can only imagine the technology that goes into it um and you just point it at the in the direction of a medley of bird sounds and it picks out each one and then tells you what you're listening to it's just an it's an incredible life asset. It's just made me so happy as someone who's too lazy to learn these in the first place, much less memorize them. Uh, it's wonderful. But that's not my endorsement. I, my endorsement is uh, uh, my second um, collegially loving thing to Julia, offering to Julia Turner always is music that is uh, rivals Red Garland for its put-on ability, Ooh. its reliability around cocktail hour, uh, especially with friends or family or both or whatever. Um, there's this... He's a alto saxophonist. I know we're we're we always place a very high premium on pianists, but um, Sonny Red was a was a, a, a alto sax player who you know he's sort of in the in the in the very much in the shadow of the giants, right? The giant altoists like Parker and, and Coltrane and on and on. Um, never really broke through. He made one absolutely totally exquisite record for Blue Note in the 60s called Out of the Blue, Sunny Red, and it features one of my favorite pianists, Wynton Kelly. It's a very piano-forward record for one uh, in which the band leader is a, is a sax player. 
It's very elegant. It's beautiful. It, to me, it's hitting that same magic, you know, spot inside me that uh, Red Garland does. So, Out of the Blue, and it's by the saxophone player Sonny Red, R-E-D. Uh, check it out. All right. Well, uh, Julia, as always, uh, almost a total pleasure. Next time you'll text me back. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't text you back, Steve. It's been a week. Uh, Dana, as always, an immense, immense pleasure. We had two topics, especially. It was just a delight to hear, you know, from you about Woodward uh, Newman, but also that that crazy movie. Nope, that was a fun episode. I agree. Total pleasure. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant, you ought to know by now, is Nadira Goff. And of course, our uh, producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens, Isaac Butler, and of course, Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we return to Nope, beguiling, bedeviling, fascinating, great, or was it? Uh, we will hash all of that out. Uh, Dana, I think you are the movie's um, most, I won't call you its detractor, I'll call you its most befuddled praiser on this call. Can, can you? Can yeah, you... I'm the biggest head scratcher. My nails are digging into my scalp here on this one. Can you can you share um, a few of of your big questions about the finale of the film, and we can kick them around? I mean, sure. As long as we're spoiling, let's start with the very last image. I mean, I agree that visually the last image is stunning. If I remember right, I've seen the movie now over two weeks ago, but it was Daniel Kaluuya on the horse as seen through the gates of Jupiter's claim. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah, it's exactly the image I have in mind, as seen by his sister. Right. So, right. okay, question number one, which I think we talked about in the, the Slate Spoiler special podcast I recorded with Nadira on this, is he really there? <laughs> or did he die and she's seeing him in a sort of, you know, nimbus of, of love and nostalgia and remembering her brother's sacrifice? I mean, isn't it implied that he may have sacrificed himself? And wasn't that what the big standoff was about at that moment that they're looking at each other underneath the, you know, fully expanded creature, right? And there's seems to be this standoff moment where they're each waiting for the other one to move. My reading of that, and this is the thing I asked the other two critics on the way out and they didn't know either, was that each sibling was trying to sacrifice themselves for the other sibling and saying, no, you run and I will distract the alien. No, you run and I'll distract the alien. And it ended up being him who distracted the alien and that it was implied that he didn't make it. So if he did make it, then why did we not get to see him make it? Or is that not a question that occurred to you too? Oh, I think they both make it. I don't feel like this is confusing. I think what's happening is they do this dance where he has to distract the alien enough to um, uh, get her motorcycle to start because she can't do the distracting until the alien gets pulled back. And then she, once her motorcycle can start, she starts the distraction and the gut and the alien chases her. I mean, we never, you know, anytime anybody dies we see the zoop of them getting pulled into the sky we never see him get zooped up like i think for him to be dead it would have been more of a moment i think it's more likely that they would have lingered on his death than it would have lingered on his survival i think that's the reveal of his survival and that she sort of she doesn't care that she got the shot anymore 
Exactly. Like she's not looking at the shot. You you almost feel like she doesn't give a fuck about the shot and she's just going to leave those pictures for the TMZ, the scabrous Ex- media hordes who are coming because all that matters is that her brother is alive. Exactly. And that's Jordan Peele's movies, The Shot. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so fucking great. It's like... He's like, no, embrace the real, the human real. You are being alienated from your own self by your compulsion to get the shot, to enter the media sphere by having and owning the shot. You are, you know, enthralled to spectacle, move away from the shot and look at the real. And this is a movie in which I'm going to say that with the shot, like this beautifully framed shot of Daniel Kaluuya on the horse in the mist, framed by the Hokum amusement parks uh, sign, right? Like the whatever entranceway, like the oldie Western entranceway. It's like, this guy has it all going at once right now. I just wish I'd loved it more as a movie, but that's what I loved about the ending. As to whether he lives or dies, I think I walked out in one of those like fakey English class, oh, we don't know. Do we? Like that's the whole point. Like, don't be a literalist. But I kind of now I want to believe what Julia's telling me here. I will say though, as you describe that, I'm remembering that the thing that frames him, doesn't it say out yonder? Out yonder, yeah. maybe, is yeah. a, a point in the death column, <laughs> just to argue <laughs> against myself. <laughs> very, very, very good point, yeah. Can I bring up, okay, here is my other big question, and this is less a sort of what was literally happening than how do these two ideas get integrated, is that I think a, a, a I guess, flaw of this movie or just something that doesn't seem like a completed arc or gesture is the interweaving of the two big backstories, right? So there's the Stephen Young kid on a sitcom everybody chewed up by an ape story and then there's the present day siblings horse farm story right which interweaves with with Yuan's present day self and i think that there are i i think there's a lot left out in what are those two stories doing together like i kept on waiting for the gordy's home flashbacks to start to cohere into an, an argument or a a thesis about all the things that it's about, which is, you know, I think um, spectacle, entertainment, you know, race, exploitation, obviously. Gordy is this figure of an exploited animal. And the spaceship, in a way, is also an ex- or the spaceship creature that turns out to be both at once sort of is also kind of an exploited animal. But it is also, I guess, the exploiter or the consumer. I mean, there were moments when it seemed as if the movie was almost going to be about animal rights in a way, you know, or or by in a larger sense about e- ecology, about, you know, some sort of green parable or something. But I'm not sure if that thread was ever fully picked up. I just felt like there were a lot of things left on the table in the in the Gordy story. And that's part right. of the reason that I want to see it again. And like I as you, like you say, Steve, I understand what the ideas are, you know, like the yeah, ones exactly, that I was just yeah. listing. And I don't think that the movie is um, hammering away at those ideas in a didactic way. In fact, it could have used a little bit more not didacticism, but a little bit more generosity toward the audience in saying like, okay, now you have this jumble of ideas in your mind. Now I, Jordan Peele, I'm going to mold them into something that feels whole. And I'm not sure that that ever arrived for me. Yeah. Can I point out one thing very quickly? Sorry to jump in, Julia, but the Gordy story, I agree. It's like, what's the relationship of this, you know, chimp going crazy on set and killing everyone 
in may total ultraviolent mayhem which we see depicted in this interesting way in which it's both shown and not shown you know um it is um it seems very central to peel's idea obviously it is totally central to peel's idea of the movie it opens the whole movie but there's this other moment we haven't talked about which is that after committing the mayhem there's this extraordinary moment where the chimp the killer chimp bathed in blood like its jowls hairy jowls bathed in blood makes eye contact with the lens of the camera that peel is shooting with right and it's a very arresting moment because of course it's the one thing that almost never happens in film this is you know in 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 narrative film right feature filmmaking is 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 an actor making a direct but seemingly incidental look right into the camera and especially this you know this kind of murderous animal doing it at that moment it's horrific and what he's doing actually in the narrative of the film is making eye contact with the child star the child version of Stephen Young who was a as a child star in a sitcom clearly about a white family that adopts an Asian boy and the chimp begins to move toward the camera aka the young young character in this way that's very frightening and very menacing and then he gets there and there's a long pause and he reaches out and he fist bumps him which he's been trained to do i i think the movie tells us that he's been trained to do that for an earlier scene in the sitcom well talk about julia a racially loaded moment right because it's you know it reminded me of that extraordinary moment at the end of Do the Right Thing where the a- Asian, I think, Korean market owner uh, in bed is about to find his um, uh, market burned down alongside Sal's pizzeria. And he's saying, no, no, no. He's saying to this, you know, this crowd that's avenging the death of, of Radio Rahim, he says, no, I'm you. I'm like, he's like, no, there's racial solidarity here. I'm the other two, right? And this is Peel seemingly saying, like, you know, what a, you know, what a repulsive setup. It's like a sort of Asian different strokes, right? And that, you know, you can kind of subordinate and, and, and treat as animals to be tamed minority performers, right? Like black, brown, uh, Asian performers, totally embedded within and, and manipulative objects within white narratives, only to a certain point. And beyond that point, the, the backlash is going to be, you know, like really powerfully like violent and negative. And, and it's, it's, it's like, it's not that it's, it's such a funny moment. That fist bump is so, I don't know. It's just so mind blowing. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like, this is how fucking, this is how fucking angry we are. Right. Like, like what I feel like Jordan Peele is indicating is that he grew up in an America where, you know, black actors and performers were so inherently subordinated to manipulative white ends within the entertainment industry, within the within the entertainment product that he consumed. They had the same status as trained animals in some sense. And that the whole movie is about, like, there's the nope of Daniel Kaluuya, which is very, very passive and is very, very mildly delivered. It's just like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look, right? I'm not gonna give in to, to, to looking at this thing looming over my thing. But there's this much, much more violent, more powerful no, which is like, like, fuck you, we are not your trained animals, right? Like, you know, I, 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 we are the subjects of our own stories, and we will write them. And it's, it's like, that's what Gordy's in there for. 
it's beautifully integrated into the ideas of the movie and it's so deeply felt. Is it that integrated into the movie as a movie though? That's where I get stuck even though I kind of loved this. I, I wanted that to be a more organically plot integrated feature of the film as a film only because of the standards that Peel set with um, with Get Out. But I don't know. That, well, that, this I don't is know where... if that adds up to anything. But Yeah, I mean, this is where I also would be interested. I mean, I rarely would I ever say, please show me the three hour and 45 minute cut. But I do think in this movie, I would be so curious to see it because I think uh, I think there's more to the grown up Stephen Young characters world. I Steve, you said in our main segment that he's just a huckster pretending that there are aliens in the sky and that he is surprised by the arrival of the real alien. I didn't read it that way. I read it as he thinks he has trained the alien. He thinks he has he thinks the alien is his trained animal for his spectacle and that um he, you know, he he has tracked its patterns and been able to sort of watch it go by and and is is sacrificing the horses to it and it has been kind of playing nice with his uh show um and then i think we're supposed to believe that because oj and m have fed it the um plastic horse with the trailing ribbons uh it's got indigestion so it shows up early and eats everybody um so I don't think I so so, but those questions and sort of what's really going on at Jupiter's claim, I think, get to some of these some of that connective tissue between the read of the Gordy scene and and what Peel is saying about modern Hollywood. But you know, I think there's the I mean, we see just the repression and the and the and the desire to play along, right? Like he's he's. I mean, it's a really chilling moment early on where Steven Yen's character is kind of describing with the fervor of the uh, almost person-driven insane by their pop culture consumption. He's describing like a hypothetical SNL sketch about this, you know, fictional sitcom massacre. And um, then you see that in his interior, he's just flashing back to his like blood-spattered terrified child self um and that sense of subverting his own uh personhood and also reverting back to the moment after you know we we later realize that that what he's flashing back to is the moment after the the fist the, the true exploding fist bump right the fist bump where the where the chimp is blown away before the fist bump happens um th- that he's just decided to play along. He's like, okay, I was a spectacle and now I'm going to be the spectacle and I can control it. And I can, you know, I'm, if I'm training the gaze, I mean, I almost wonder if in a, in a deeper read of the film, and I do want to see it again too, Dana, like is the Steven Yeun character, the character of, you know, the, the creator of color in Hollywood, who's trying to wrangle everything for, for their own purposes, um, but are still constrained by the fundamental exploitation that's inherent in, you know, using all of this craft and skill and technique to spin out a story to manipulate audiences into having responses, right? Like there's something fundamentally 
fucked about that relationship yeah, he clearly, at the same time he, as there is something beautiful about it and at the same time as you want more people to have the power to do it. Yeah, I think Stephen Yun's character, Ricky Park, is clearly supposed to be um, somebody whose consciousness has not been raised, right? Like you say, he's he's somebody who has accepted that position on the margins of the entertainment industry as this kind of um, ethnic performer, clown, you know, um, and, and that he plays that out on the ranch every day. But here's a place where I feel like actual exposition of what is happening in the story would have greatly helped the thematic understanding of that plot and how it relates to the siblings and their horse ranch, because... It, it's not accidental that you and Steve perceived completely different things as what whatever the show was, the daily show that he'd been putting on at his ranch, because it's never explained to us what it normally would be, what that show would look like on a normal day. It seems like he somehow had been able to predict the alien's behavior enough that he knew that it would show up at a certain time and you could sell tickets and it would eat one horse and leave. But how did he get to that point, given that the siblings, as you say, Stephen, are so in over their heads just trying to predict or capture anything about it? There just there needed to be a little bit more just time with Stephen Yun at, at his ranch, right. right? And also, I have to point out that like if he said had some some success, you know, kind of you know eliciting predictable appearances out of that creature in the sky, and he has like nine retirees in the crowd, like word hasn't gotten out, right? Like, how does you know? No one, no people have caught glimpses of that, and they haven't put it on their iPhone, and it hasn't gone up viral, and like the NSA and the you know army aren't there. I mean, I just don't, I can't believe that this is the this is the second, third, you know, much less fifteenth time that he's conjured this thing out of the sky. It has to be that there's some weird hokum thing that he does. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Okay, here's a question I've also asked everyone, including Nadira on in our spoiler special, and I don't think anybody quite gets it. What What's going on with the sneaker that stands up on end on the set of Gordy's Home, which Stephen Yeun later has framed in his crazy, you know, secret office of memorabilia about the incident? There's something that's implied, I think, that's supernatural that's going on there and that maybe is influenced by the alien. I'm, I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean, and it seems like that and a couple of other hints in the Gordy's Home flashbacks are implying that the alien was exerting some influence influence already then, you know, that there was some sort of strange um, non-human thing going on in relation to that story. Do you think that that's implied or does the tennis shoe standing up on it not matter? Oh, I heavily implied. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the same thing. I forget which story I read, which suggested that that shoe was a figment of uh, the Yun character's imagination and that perhaps the memory of the fist bump was too, which I thought was an interesting read. But I don't know, man. That's where we got to do the second viewing. Yeah, I mean, here's where the fan theories, and it just almost seems in a way like Peel is scattering little crumbs for people to find their way out of the forest. And that's all really cool in terms of generating conversation about a movie. But I feel like it is on the movie itself to know those things. And even if it doesn't communicate them all to us clearly, to have, you know, a, a coherent sense of what all those details are doing. And I bet the longer cut does have them, which isn't to say it isn't too long. It probably is. But I think... If I were a production executive giving notes on this script or this cut of the movie, I might say, can we expand here and maybe cut over there to make room for the expansion? You know, and one of the things I would expand for sure would be Gordy, Stephen Yun, Jupiter's claim, everything to do with that plot line. All right. Well, um, join us when the long cut finally comes out. We'll revisit for sure. Uh, in the meantime, please send us your 
thoughts, theories, questions, and conclusions at culturefest at slate.com. Thank you so much, Slate Plus listeners, for listening to this bonus segment of our show, for being members and supporting our show and all of the work that Slate does. We'll see you next week.